Present Value Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Gabralian. Today, we welcome on Cornell alum and now a professional squash player, ranked number 21 in the world. She also happened to live down the hall from me freshman year of college, Danielle Letourneau. To give you some background on Danielle, we have Carter Clark, former member of the Cornell men's squash team. We are lucky to have Danielle Letourneau on today's podcast as she is a Cornellian, having graduated in 2015 from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. After playing four years on the women's squash team at Cornell, Danielle immediately transitioned to the Professional Squash Association World Tour. We're especially excited to hear her reflect on her past year, where she made the decision to live and train full-time in Egypt, and her game has risen to another level as she has reached her highest ranking of number 21 in the world. Danielle comes from a large squash family from Calgary, Alberta, and started playing squash early at seven years old and quickly became a top player in Canada, consistently representing Team Canada in world singles and team events since 2009. She's one of the top Canadian women right now, having won the national championship in 2018 and finishing in the top three every year since 2014. She won three medals at the 2018 Pan American Championships, silver in the women's team event, and bronze in both women's singles and mixed doubles. Over the course of her pro career, she has won four PSA titles and competes against the top players in the world at major tournaments and venues like the World Championships in Egypt and the Tournament of Champions in Grand Central Tournament. To say her four years at Cornell were successful would be an understatement. During her time, the Cornell women's team consistently finished in the top eight in the country. And from 2011 to 2015, she was a fixture at the team's number one position and was a two-time captain. She represented the Big Red consistently and competitively against the best collegiate players and finished her career a four-time All-Ivy League and four-time All-American selection. I was on the men's team at the time and can attest that Danielle is a tremendous competitor and worker, always looking to improve her game physically, technically, and mentally. She would regularly practice and compete with us, and while I will not reveal any results, she definitely kicked my butt on the court, on the bike, and in the gym. She's always looking for a challenge, and I think her success after Cornell really demonstrates that. Now, I will quit boasting. I've served it up for Christine to drive this interview, and if you're familiar with squash, you'll recognize that those are killer squash puns. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to Present Value Podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me. Thinking back to when you were a little kid, what was it that piqued your interest in the sport of squash? Well, I'd say my whole family plays. So my grandparents started playing, um, then my mom did. That's actually how she met my dad. She taught him how to play squash. And then my my brother, my cousins, it's a whole family affair. So I kind of got into it because of them. And then my brother played competitively. And I've just always kind of looked up to him and tried to follow in his footsteps. So I guess that being said, do you think that that is kind of a driving force behind where you are today is that support system? Oh, definitely. Um, especially you said moving away from home, just knowing that I always have, they encourage me to pursue my goals and dreams and they're not forcing me to stop playing, which I know some people might you know that it's a certain point when you're not, might not be doing too well in your career. And 
um, it's always nice knowing that they believe in me and want me to keep doing what I love. So it, it definitely helps when it comes to playing. So you're originally from Calgary, but right now we're talking to you and you're in Egypt. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there? So um, I guess after you know, graduating, I moved back to Calgary and I was playing, kind of basing myself in Calgary, had my whole setup there. But after a while, I felt like I didn't really, I was improving as quickly as I wanted to and kind of was plateauing a bit. And so I needed a change. And just by kind of a fluke, I ended up here for two months of training in 2019, in fall 2019. I was supposed to come for a tournament and then go to England, play a few other league matches and come back. And my visa for England didn't work out. So I ended up just staying in Egypt for two months. And it it worked out really well. I improved and I figured I don't have a whole lot of time left age-wise for playing. So I decided to make the change. And a visa not working out ended up being great. <laughs> yeah, it worked out great. And then, I mean, I had a bit of, uh, I know, persuasion from my, my coach who kind of encouraged me to do it because I was a little hesitant. Had you been to Egypt before prior to, um, you know, 2019, the tournament there? Yeah, I'd come for about small training trips, like max 10 days and like tournaments. Bit of a different experience, but at least like I knew what I was getting myself into a little bit. What were some of the main reasons and contributing factors to your decision to move to Egypt and live and train there as your home base full time? Well, I think the main thing is like they have the numbers. They have so many players. They're all the best in the world. They're dominating the sport. And so, you know, in Calgary, I had, you know, I had people to play with and they're all great. But I mean, most of them are, you know, working full jobs and they might play at night. So the consistency of training was a bit tough to come by whereas here I can play a new person every day for a few weeks and it's like the intensity of the training the quantity like quality and quantity of players kind of made it worth it to stay in one spot that's awesome so a different so how long have you gone playing a different player every day for like consecutive days Ooh, I probably go at least like two weeks and then you know you know you always have your regulars the people you like to hit with but probably at least like 14 days without a repeat when you do something like that are you able to kind of refine your skills in terms of how to respond to maybe a different type of player, a little bit curious what that allows for in terms of refining your own skills. Yeah, definitely. Like before a tournament, I might start playing with certain people with a certain style. If my jaw, like if I look at the jaw and I'm playing someone who will run and retrieve everything, but might not be as much of a shot maker, I'll try and find players similar to that and just kind of get used to it and build on what my style and how I'm going to respond and then or I'll play players who I struggle against and just keep playing with them until I kind of find a solution. At what point in your squash career did you start to recognize what your strongest and weakest skills were especially relative to other players? I think it's like an ongoing process like there's there's moments in my junior career where you know, I had one strength, like I was a really good volleyer and I could um, lob the ball very well, but I actually didn't move that well. Even if I was fit, like I could, I could go on a track and run forever, but my movement on court wasn't great. And then I'd say that's almost through time. Like when I was at university, I became more of like a grinder, could run and just hit the ball, but I didn't play as many attacking shots. And now it's kind of evolved again and I'm moving really well. I am attacking, but it's more maybe I lost like my length game at a certain point. So it's, I feel like it's always kind of adjusting to the different style, like university required one sort of style. And then 
now on tour, my style worked for a certain amount of time. And then now that I'm getting up the rankings, you kind of find those gaps a bit more um, with each kind of new ranking bracket. There's always there's always something. Unfortunately, there's always something to work on. <laughs> Did you go into college kind of thinking that, you know, one day you would end up continuing with the sport? Yeah. So my plan originally was if I didn't get into university, I would go play pro right away. And so then when I got into into Cornell, I obviously that changed. And I, for the first two years, I wasn't sure if I would actually go back and play professionally because I just loved school. I loved learning new things. I wanted to kind of prove to myself that I could do more than just squash. But then as I got further into school, it's like I knew, you know, there's only really one time when I can actually go and, and play. And I've been dreaming about it since I was probably 10, 11. So a long time. So kind of had to. <laughs> And when you think back to your time at Cornell as both a student and a member of the Cornell squash team, how were you able to efficiently manage and juggle school and classes and social life and perfecting your squash game? Well, I think for me, I found that the best way to manage it was just going to squash as that's the best part of my day. And it was. So like, I think there are times with some of my teammates who struggled because they'd be going to squash, they'd be stressed out, like, oh, I'm not studying, I'm not doing this. So then you, when you're actually on court, you're not going to be making the most of it. You're not going to be enjoying it. And so I think the thing I did was just say, this is the best part of my day. I'm going to play squash. I'm going to have fun. And I'll deal with the you know school after. And you end up managing your time eventually. Like You would know like, by senior year, you you have so much extra time just by getting used to it. So so now when you're kind of approaching your days, obviously it's a bit of a shift from having to juggle classwork and, and, and squash. Now really, is it more juggling free time in squash? Is it juggling training in addition? Kind of curious, like what the, the biggest juggles are now for you? I'd say managing energy because especially when I was more in North America, Canada, when I was at tournaments before COVID. And I'm, I like being social. I like getting out, you know, you go for food or you want to go see friends, but then you have to go to training. And I found there's times when just trying to balance your energy, if you do too much during the day, you're not going to actually make use of that time. But it's funny here, like here it's all squash. Like I don't, I, I don't have a huge personal life in Egypt. It's pretty much all business. So here I'd say it's the opposite. It's I, I go to training, I come back and I have so much downtime. But I'm normally so tired that, you know, I'm just going to eat and sleep. So for me, juggling now is more like I've tried to add in more of a personal life. So then I don't lose my mind. So Fridays are the weekend here, my one day off. And so on Friday, I try and get away, go outside, do something fun. What has been kind of, do you think, the best part of really focusing on some of the skills outside of just playing, um, you know, practice matches and everything. I think because there's the intensity has been so high, it makes you really like zone in on every part of your game. So like I've started seeing a nutrition coach here um, and I meet with him every two weeks doing in-body. He, he like made me adjust like all my food, uh, which helped a ton because the food's so different here. So it's, it's still very basic. And then the fitness, you know, I like having the, like, I still work with my coach from back home and he just sends me all my workouts online. It's so nice. And it's nice, nice having a bit of like consistency from something before. And so not everything is new. Um, but the gym I'm a, like, I'm a member at, like everyone's very welcoming. It's out, like half the gym's outside, which is pretty nice to get some fresh air. 
so I really enjoy that part. And, um, and I've been working with uh, Samir Degree, and he's he does movement for me. And I hadn't actually done any sessions like that in my whole life. Like for, like in squash in North America, I feel like it's more based on technique and I'd say more technical based, but not movement based. And so there might be some ghosting and encore movement, but not like this. So I meet with him three times a week, and that's just it's a killer. <laughs> so it's a love a love hate relationship, but. I guess, so when you say movement, can you maybe speak a little bit to, to what that involves? And- yeah, definitely. So the movement's like the on-court footwork. And so there's kind of two sides to the fitness. So if I do all my gym stuff, it's all like giving me the base work and framework to, you know, be fit and play through a long match and be strong to do the movement. And then the movement sessions with Samir are the actual, it's like transitioning all the fitness from off-court onto on-court. So what we do is we'll do specific um, footwork patterns. So it might be I move to the two front corners alternating. And I could do that for a 30 seconds interval and then take 15 seconds off and then do that eight times. And I'm going as fast as I can. And then I might pick a different pattern or I'll do um, up to like five sets depending on, you know, the time of time of the week and training and stuff, but it's more just to take it from the off court to the on court. When you then get to the court, do you kind of even recognize in the, in the moment, Oh, this is from training or it has it, is it kind of just second nature? It kind of has become second nature. So at first when I started working with him, we were taking videos and you, he'd slow it down and see like certain steps where it's like natural habit from what I've been doing before and trying to break that habit. And so now after doing the repetition, because you're repeating it so much, um, it now has become muscle memory, like the good habit. But it helped having, I feel like it's one of the things where you have to actually video and see where are the flaws, because it's easy to think you're doing it right, because you're still going to the same part of the court. But maybe you're not as efficient as you could be. And it's also like helping having like the direction to see what knowing the small things between right and wrong, because for me, like that's something I had never really zoned in on until I came here and looking at how I moved before it's like well why didn't I know any of this <laughs> like it's some like just small things that add up so he's my movement coach and then I have my squash coach which is Kareem Ali Fathy and so he he does like all my on-court sessions for feeding he does helps me with my planning for tournaments game plan style everything he's he's kind of like the the main boss and he runs the show <laughs> uh, okay so you have your squash you have your your squash coach cream then you have your movement coach then you have your your trainer from back um back in this in uh, from calgary and then you have your nutrition your nutrition coach nutritionist as well yeah and then i have a sports psychologist from calgary who works at the University of Calgary and teaches psychology, Dave Paskovich. And then I just recently started working with this other guy, Brock Montgomery, and he does meditation with me and breathing techniques. So I will do a session with him maybe every two weeks and he gives me homework to do and kind of keep working on like how to breathe. And that he, he's my most recent addition to the team. And I, um, I started working with him before my last tournament and it's been huge difference. What have you noticed in working with your sports psychologist that has really allowed you to do? Is it improving your focus, uh, not being distracted by viewers or things happening on the court? 
a mix. So like, I think for me, it helps calm me down. I get really nervous or especially I've always been pretty good at defending against like lower range players, but then I go into like a big match and um, there's one match I had happen in October. I was playing in front of the pyramids and I was playing world number one and you know, I was not going to win that match no matter how well I played, but I was so nervous and overwhelmed by the whole experience. And I didn't have that ability to kind of calm myself down and, you know, actually relax and play until maybe partway through the second or third game. So he's actually really helped kind of prep me before I, like at the start of my day, I'll do breathing technique, visualization. And then in my warm up, as I'm actually getting myself going, I'm breathing the whole time. And it just kind of keeps my nerves, you know, a little bit more on edge. And I can just be present in the moment and not thinking about what if I win? What if I lose? What if this happens or anything like that? It's just okay. Or what if this person's annoying me on court? It's easy just to kind of put it aside and be just within myself. I, I was actually amazed because like I, he, he went and like did like a full year of trying to learn it. And there's so many like little nuances and different types of breathing for different situations and just trying to. I was like during quarantine and stuff, I think a lot of people are like, okay, you should meditate. You should, you know, be okay with the circumstances. There's a lot of uncertainty. And I got that app calm and you can, it's great, but you can sit there and think like, okay, I'm trying to meditate. And then you overthink it and you're not sure if you're actually doing anything right or worthwhile. So he's helped actually give some direction and purpose. So you're not just aimlessly like sitting there in your own thoughts. I think some players work with, you know, mental coaches and they might do some meditation. But I think when you talk to other players, there's actually quite a bit of secrecy around the small things that they do. I think everyone's pretty open about, you know, everyone's working out, everyone's doing fitness, maybe some ghosting, but no one's going to tell you specifics about what they do. Shifting gears a bit to the topic of sponsorships. When it comes to getting a sponsor in squash as a pro, can you speak a little bit to what this process entails? It's actually it's actually quite a tough process and it takes a lot of building. So I think the main sponsors that most players will go for is like you want to get a racket sponsor, maybe a shoe sponsor and clothing sponsor. And sometimes they can all be bundled in one, depending on the company. And But there might not be any monetary um, sponsorship when you're first starting based on your ranking. And so it does take a long time to actually build up or, you know, it's not as, not like tennis where it's as visible um, on TV or there's not that same amount of money in the sport. So it is, it does take a while to build up, but I mean, luckily for me in Canada, we have the, we have squash Canada, we have sport Canada and they fund a lot of um, athletes of, you know, you know, different sports. So with, for me, the main one for me was getting into um, getting high up in the Canadian rankings to start and getting backed by sport Canada. Um, So that's made the biggest difference. And then it gave me a bit more flexibility financially to go to a tournament and not have to stress. And they also changed the structure. So when I first came on tour, there was qualifying events or there was qualifying before you go into the main draw. But if you were to lose first round of qualifying, there is no prize money and there's no points. So you pretty much come out with a negative. You would have spent your own money on flight, accommodation, food, and you don't get anything um, at all. I can't even imagine how 
stressful that must be. Oh, no, it's it's so stressful. Like you, you're pretty much debating, do I go to a small tournament where maybe I won't make as much money, but I can go further and get some points? Or do I go to a big tournament where there's the opportunity? But if you lose, you, you come out with nothing. So PSA um, has luckily changed that. So now there's no qualifying and you get prize money even if you lose first round, but you have to be able to qualify into the event, but based on your ranking, but at least when you go now, there's, you're not coming out with, with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously tough with like smaller chairmen. You have to play a bit more locally to start. And then as you grow, you can kind of play more of the international tournaments and travel and, you know, manage it. But then sponsors wise, it helps once you get to the bigger events and you're on squash TV um, a lot of players will print logos on their shirts. And like for me, I have Technifiber, Teuton, and uh, Expression Networks as my main main sponsors. And they, they help a ton. But for me, the thing that you, I would say on the rare occasion, a sponsor will approach you. But a lot of the time, until you're like a top 10 player, you have to do a lot of the groundwork on your own. And so what I did, I made a um, like a player portfolio kind of saying who I am, my story, rankings, social media. And, you know, I've been obviously trying to grow that as well and just trying to sell myself. But I think, and that helped and um, kind of promote myself. But I think a few players do that. Some players don't. Some people just rely on social media. Some people just try and scrape by and coach a lot on the side to, you know, support the squash. I wouldn't say there's really one sort of way people go about it. We've had a few workshops with, PSA they try and help give us information and I think the story is the biggest thing like there's um, another player from the states and she had a huge Achilles rupture and she's come back and she actually just got to world number five um, yesterday she's the first U.S. player to reach top five in the world but I think for her she kind of took that setback and really used it to create her story and gain people and she's doing very well with like sponsors and everyone would know who she is. But I think, and for me, that my story was obviously coming to Egypt and that's helped grow and promote me. But before then, it's tough when you're you're just starting and you don't feel like you have a story. You're like, okay, well, maybe I just graduated. I'm playing squash or, you know, so it's, it is, it's a bit of a process to kind of figure out how to actually sell yourself. Thinking about your own story, what would you say is the most unique part of your own squash career and background and upbringing? I'd say, you know, just I'm always outside my comfort zone. You meet a lot of people. I'm dealing with the language barrier all the time. And I think, you know, each month has been so different here that it's just been kind of fun to, you know, see how I handle it and, I don't know, meet people, learn about the culture. Ramadan's coming up. So next month is going to be completely backwards. Training's going to be in the middle of the night. It's pretty much like during the daylight, everyone's not eating. No one's doing anything. And so all the training's going to be after feast and then you're going to eat again before waking up. I, I won't fast, but I mean, the schedule's still going to be shifted. So, I mean, there's just so many different things like that. Yeah, you have to toughen up here. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, you're not, you're not pampered. You don't get to have like a, you know, a nice ice bath after practice and your smoothie and have a nice like five minute drive home. You're going to have a half hour Uber in traffic. You're going to have noise. You're going to have, like chaos. So I think it's made you, you know, you learn how to deal with it and it's, it's helped. Have you noticed any major differences in your experience playing squash in Egypt versus 
playing in other locations and countries around the world that you have also played in, whether it's uh, you know conditions on the court or just how you feel as a player? I'd say, I mean, one thing that changes everywhere is the altitude. So, I mean, going to England compared to here, um, compared to Calgary, the altitude and the, like how much the ball bounces is very different. Um, I'd say normally here it's a bit livelier because of the heat. So like the courts normally get pretty warm unless it's they're blasting AC. Um, I guess the toughest part about training here is so the even if you sweep the floors every day, there's going to be dust because the it just gets everywhere. It it does not matter how many times you sweep or clean, there is dust and sand. So the courts get very slippy. And so what a lot of the Egyptian players do, they know how to like slide into the ball. So when they move and like they lunge, they kind of let their foot go. And so it's like almost like a tennis, but you can almost go like splits. And I still can't do that mo- motion. I can't do that movement um, unless it's by accident. And I accidentally slip on the sand and I move and I just kind of survive. Um, but, but they like have always learned how to do it. And so for them, they can just like slide into the ball on any court. And they're okay. So for me, I've like learned how to try and learn how to move on like a slippy court because I've always just had really nice conditions. I don't have to worry about it and being comfortable with letting your leg just kind of go. And I was going to say the one other thing is in the summer. So when I first came here, it was 45 degrees and super humid in the summer. I was playing at a court with no AC and there's no air conditioning at this one court. I think now they have air conditioning, but you just feel terrible the whole time you're playing and just sweating and hot. So like that condition for me is that one's hard. I had that happen one time in, um, in Shanghai as well. And it was 80% humidity. You're playing outside and it's, it just like takes your breath away as you're playing. So those are like for Egypt and, and Asia, like that's kind of a condition that's, that's tough. If you had to choose between, I guess the, the slippery conditions and then the heat, would you choose... Ooh, I I think now now I would pick heat because I'm used to it. But before I would have picked slippery. How has the tournament schedule been for the sport of squash during the last year with COVID, of course, affecting professional sports across the globe? Yeah, uh, I think it's, I mean, last year when we weren't sure if tournaments were even going to come back, like we, we lucked out and PSA did a great job of getting a tournament on in September. So that's when the first event was. And then... Um, that was in England, and then they've had a few in Egypt because there's no real restrictions here. I think those first few months of uncertainty, when you don't know when you're going to play again, and I know for a lot of like lower ranked players right now, there aren't um, too many small tournaments. It's only majors. It's it's tough. So I think it's nice seeing a bit of a you know light at the end of the tunnel and knowing when you can get like that regular schedule going and. When the podcast production team and I were kind of chatting about squash leading up to this interview, you were kind of surprised that the sport is not part of the Summer Olympics. Do you have any thoughts on that or hopes or optimistic hopes that one day it might actually be added? Uh, It's definitely disappointing. Um, We had a really strong bid for the 2020 Olympics. And it was actually when I was at Cornell and they ended up saying that it they were taking, um, I think, wrestling out, and then they put it back in, and squash got cut. And I remember being in um, Man Library and crying in like that little phone booth area because I was so upset because I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, perfect, I might be like the perfect uh, age for this. I was like, it was a short, it was a short-lived little tear up, but um, 
And then, you know, they put in a lot of effort to get into the 2020 games. And unfortunately, it just didn't, it didn't, um, it did come together. And they were looking at doing another bid for 2024. And um, they didn't really get a chance to really do a bid before they had made up their minds. So I feel like I've kind of lost hope on squash getting into the Olympics. So there's, there are things within our sport that make it tough, like with refereeing, it's so subjective and the decision-making, but we've made like huge progress with like being able to spectate and watch it on TV and the viewing and all that. So I mean, I hope at some point it can get into the Olympics, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not holding my breath right now, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. The new, the, the next initiative in your, in your uh, career. <laughs> Maybe maybe when I'm done with playing, I'll uh, I'll work on it. You know, do you do you ever think about in the future going back to Calgary and you know doing any sort of yeah. training camps or anything to kind of grow the sport? Um, you know, first locally where you, where you were from, has that ever kind of crossed your mind? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think I want to coach full time, but I would love to work and also be involved within Squash Alberta, Squash Canada, be on you know organizing committees put on tournaments um maybe at some point try and help coach like national team and help build up the program locally and both nationally i think there's a lot of you know good opportunity we can take and i think being here i'm i'm learning a lot about how they they run squash very differently here and in some ways it's it's very good because it's it's more of a business and they have tons of people playing and they're pumping money into it but at the same time, it like it's because it's so competitive. It's maybe less of a you know super friendly social atmosphere, which is what we have back home. So I think it'd be good to find a way to balance it and kind of get the best of both worlds. Do you does anything come to mind like you know with balancing a way that maybe it could be balanced, just from your perspective? So it's funny here, they don't have any real social leagues. Like we have interclub, we have social leagues with like businessmen, businesswomen, um, families, kids, like everyone is playing and it's more of like a life sport, it's a community. And when you go to a junior program, it's very welcoming, you know, let's get kids involved, let's get them playing, which is perfect. We want that. We want a good like, atmosphere and sports community. Here, it's, let's say you're playing a, a tournament. They have junior nationals on right now. Instead of you get three matches, no matter what, win, lose, you get three matches here, you lose, you're done, go home. And so, so even at like a 10 year old, you lose, you're not good, go home. (laughs) And so it's like, so I don't, I don't want squash in Canada to be like that cutthroat, obviously. Like, I think it's, you want people to keep playing and, you know, build a sport, love going to tournaments, but I think they have such a competitive aspect here. And because you can see the top players, um, they're all Egyptian. So you can see like the reward of it. It's like, if I'm playing tennis and I see Jeannie Bouchard or Andre Eskew, it's like, okay, well, I want to have that. And so there's that natural, um, kind of competitiveness, but I think because it's not as visible in Canada, and we're so separated with such a big country. You don't get that same interaction with the top players that often we don't have the same numbers. It's tough to kind of have that same intensity and like pushing each other. So I think trying to find a way to get more interaction between all the top players within the country and pushing each other 
is something we need to find a way to kind of promote. There's like, they actually, they had this squash summit the other day and there's this, it's called interactive squash or pretty much like a video game, but on squash court. So you can hit like these, um, these moving targets on the court or they have different little styles of games and like the bubbles will appear or disappear and you do it as like a contest contest against other people. And so an exciting thing I think is they're trying to sell it to different clubs all around the world. And hopefully if you have that, you know, it's, you're still on a squash court, you're still playing, but it makes it kind of more accessible and more enjoyable for everyone, like of different ages of, even if you've never played squash, you don't follow it like in a very intense way, you can kind of get introduced to it. And I think that's one of the main struggles with the sport. So hopefully you know, you get more interactive squash and then you have it more social media and you can make it more visible in a fun way. That's not just because anyone who's watching squash, like I've had friends who are watching and they're like, it's not hockey. <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly. And so you're not, you're competing against like different sports and, and everything like that. So, you know, you have to find a way to, you know, attract more people. Danielle, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and good luck. Can't wait to see you continue to rise in the professional squash rankings and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's so nice to catch up. Thank you for listening to Present Value Podcast, an independent student-run podcast founded, created, and produced by MBA students at Cornell University. Hope you enjoyed this episode hosted by me, Christine Gabrion, and produced by Will Stankiewicz. Until next time.